0: I'm sure many of you know the name Richard Wormbrand and his book and testimony, Tortured for Christ. But what you might not know is his story of coming to faith, his call to ministry, and the church he pastored that faithfully labored together, exhorting one another and encouraging one another on a daily basis to persevere, not only in believing the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel, even in the midst of persecution. For example, did you know Richard Wormbrandt was a Jewish agnostic before coming to faith? So he was born in a nominal Jewish home, was intellectually gifted. He was fluent in nine different languages, active in liberal politics, and worked as a stockbroker, and that he and his wife, Sabina, were first introduced to the gospel at the age of 27 when a German carpenter handed them a Bible while they were on vacation and urged them to just take the time to read at least one gospel. Well, the Wormbrands not only read the gospel, but they read the rest of the Bible. And they met with Christians, and they came to faith through the faithful ministry of those believers. Shortly after, Richard felt called to the ministry, was ordained a Lutheran pastor, well-known for his charismatic preaching, But then the war broke out, World War II. Nevertheless, the Wurmbrands and their church, so faithful Christians, continued to minister the gospel, unafraid, exhorting one another and encouraging one another on a daily basis to persevere, to stand fast, despite the persecution, smuggling kings out of the ghettos, preaching in bomb shelters and passing out Christian literature to the soldiers. In fact, after World War II, when Romania became a communist state, Wormbrand and his church, so faithful Christians, organized, printed, and distributed over one million Russian gospels to Russian troops that occupied Romania. And how did they do that? Because. That's unbelievably scary, don't you think, to to print, to share, to distribute, and to interact on illegal gospel material with soldiers who are standing there while you're talking to them with guns? Well, they covered the gospels with Russian propaganda. So the only way anyone would know they were copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was if they actually opened them and read them for themselves. So the church, the people of God, faithful Christians, labored together, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds on a daily basis to persevere, not only in believing the gospel, but in proclaiming the gospel so that Russian soldiers might come to faith and grow in grace even in the midst of the persecution. And that was true. Even after the worm brands, Richard and Sabina were caught in prison and tortured for Christ. The church continued praying and exhorting and encouraging and sharing and proclaiming and remaining faithful, persevering in their faith in Christ. Here's my point. Perseverance is a community project. So we absolutely need one another. We need to exhort one another and encourage one another to not shrink back, to not grow dull, to not grow weary or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so as to turn away from the living God, but instead exhorting and encouraging one another so that we might persevere in the faith and make it all the way home to glory. So that's where we're going this morning in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3 is on page 1002. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I also encourage you to grab my outline. If you have your Bible open and your outline in your Bible, you'll be in great shape. As you're turning, let me remind you that... Last week, we saw that Jesus was greater than Moses in at least two ways. First, verse three says Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that the builder of a house is greater than the house itself, which means that Jesus is God. Second, verse five and six says Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that a son who's over a house is greater than a servant in the house. Because the son owns the house, he rules the house, he provides for the house. So Jesus is God and Jesus is the son of God. So Jesus is greater than Moses, which only matters. It only matters that Jesus is greater than Moses if you're being persecuted for your faith in Jesus and tempted to turn back to the Mosaic law and the old covenant, which these people are. So, the author is saying, Consider Jesus. He's worthy of more glory and honor and praise because he's your great high priest and he's the savior of your souls. Which brings us to verse 6 in our passage this morning. So, if you would follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 to 19. The author says, We are his house, we are God's house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, quoting Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. End quote. Verse 12, heart of our passage this morning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, again quoting Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. As we jump into number one, the topic of eternal security, The first thing I want you to understand is the structure of this passage, because there's a very clear pattern that will help us to not only understand what the author is saying, but grab a hold of the main idea and provides us with the most helpful application this morning. So this is a pattern established, and I've tried to highlight it on your outline, but let's walk through the pattern so you can see it for yourself. So number one, the if statement. Look at verse 6. The author says, We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Now look at verse 14. Author says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. So number one is the repeated if statement followed by the warning. Notice again verse 7 and verse 15 and how they both have the same exact quote from Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 stated twice, but always right after the if statement. If you look at verse 6, we are God's house, if indeed we hold fast. Verse 14, we share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast. Both times then Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So you have the if statement, then the warning, and then number three, the example given, verses 8 to 11, and then the example explained, verses 16 to 19. So example given, verses 8 to 11, highlights how the Israelites were saved out of Egypt, but then they wandered in the wilderness, grumbling, complaining, and rejecting God's provision. And as a result, they did not enter the promised land, which the author explains in verses 16 to 19. Example explained. So why did the Israelites grumble, complain, and reject God's provision? Well, their hearts were hardened by sin, disobedience, and ultimately, verse 19, unbelief. So let me just pause. Do you see the pattern? Number one if statement. Number two, warning. Number three, example. Because that's absolutely critical. You you need to understand the pattern for this reason. The heart of the passage, the applicational thrust for us this morning is smack dab in the middle of that pattern. If warning, explanation. And then you get to the heart of the passage, which is in verses 12 and 13. Look at verses 12 and 13. The author says, therefore, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, an unbelieving heart like who? Like the Israelites in the wilderness, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hopefully that makes sense to you. You can see the pattern. So what we're going to do is walk through all three parts, the if statement, the warning, and then the example, both given and explained, and then we'll close right back here in verses 12 and 13 with the application. So let's start with the if statement, which is B, perseverance required. In verse 6, the author says, we are God's house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Notice how that's a condition looking forward to the future. If we hold fast our confidence, meaning if we continue to hold fast our confidence, or you could say if we persevere in the faith. Either way, it's a condition of something that's true of the person right here, right now in the present. Because the author says we are, present tense, we are God's house right now. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Hebrews 3.6 is saying that if we hold fast our confidence, if we persevere in the faith, boasting in the Lord Jesus firm to the end, then we show, we demonstrate, we prove that we are God's house right now. Perseverance divine, defines God's people. God's people Persevere. True believers in Christ, true Christians, are those who hold fast to God, boast in the gospel, and they persevere all the way home to glory. In fact, that behavior, that evidence, that fruit in their lives, perseverance, proves. It confirms that they are truly one of God's people. Now skip down to verse 14. So we can confirm, make sure we understand what the author is saying. Verse 14, the author says, we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So again, the condition is in the future. If we hold fast, firm to the end. Meaning if we continue to hold fast, if we continue to persevere in the faith, firm to the end. Either way, it's a condition of something being true of the person right here, right now, in the present Because the author says, we have come to share in Christ right now in the present, if indeed we hold fast, our confidence firm to the end. So Hebrews 3.14 is saying, if we hold fast to our confidence and persevere in the faith, believing in Jesus, continue to believe in Jesus, firm to the end, then we show, we demonstrate, we prove that we have truly come to faith in Christ. So again, perseverance is required. True believers in Christ, true Christians believe in Jesus and persevere in Jesus firm to the end. That behavior, that, that evidence, that fruit in their lives demonstrates, it proves, it confirms that they're truly a believer. Now, why is that so important? I and mean, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, because it tells you, you can't truly believe in Jesus, share in his heavenly calling, and be part of God's people, and then lose your salvation. So the upshot is that we as believers in Christ have eternal security, which is glorious, I mean, just to know for certain, just to be sure that if I truly believe in Jesus, God will make sure he promises to hold me fast all the way home to glory. Praise God that we have that certainty. But that also means that if we're not persevering in the faith, then we never really believed in Jesus in the first place. I mean, just flip the verses around from positive to negative. Verse 6 would then say, if we don't hold fast our confidence, then we're not truly God's house. Verse 14, if we don't hold fast our confidence firm to the end, then we were never one of those who shared in Christ in the first place. Again, this is so helpful. Because it means we can truly say, once saved, always saved, and that we really do have eternal security. But it also means there's no such thing as a person who used to be a Christian. More accurately, it would be to say that they never truly were a Christian, demonstrated by their current rejection of faith. In other words, not holding fast, not persevering doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. Instead, it shows that we were never saved in the first place because true believers persevere in the faith, not to earn their salvation, but as a working out of their salvation. So here's the question. How do we do that? Well, I would argue by God's word, being at work in God's people, which means, I mean, what does it mean that God's word is at work in God's people? Well, it means warnings and promises. It means examples and exhortations, which is exactly what the author is doing. So as we move from number one, eternal security, to number two, example of unbelief, let's look at the warnings that are given and the examples that are given right here in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The author says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, so the Holy Spirit speaking to us right now this morning, the Holy Spirit says, quoting Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So that's the warning. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And here's the example. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. Now, isn't it incredible how verse seven says, The Holy Spirit says. Present tense. So the Holy Spirit is still speaking this morning. And how does the Holy Spirit speak? He speaks through His word. Well, what exactly is the Spirit saying? Well, there's A, warning declared, and B, an example provided, both from Psalm 95. And the warning is super clear, isn't it? That if you're here this morning hearing God's word, then God is exhorting you to not harden your heart as in the rebellion. But here's the million dollar question What does that mean to not harden your heart? Well, the same language comes up again in verse 14 when he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's still called today that none of you may be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. So in my mind, that warning sounds a lot like the soil types that Jesus gave us in the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4. Because with soil type number one, the seed is sown on the hard soil and it's immediately snatched away. So there's no expression at all of saving faith. But with soil types two and three, the seed of the word is sown, so the, so the gospel is preached and the people hear it and they immediately receive it with joy. But when affliction or persecution or the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things comes in, the word is choked out, doesn't have its good effect And the people die. Why do they die? Because of unbelief. So that's A, the warning declared. Do not let your heart be hardened. Do not let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So don't be tempted. Don't be pulled. Don't be enticed by all that the world offers. So that it causes you to abandon your faith, your trust, your confidence in God. And who's the best example of that in all of Scripture? It's the Israelites. So be example provided. Because the author's main point in these verses is to give us a very serious warning on the way God has worked in the past. Namely, the way he dealt with Israel after the exodus. So let's just pause for a moment this morning and take a stroll down memory lane. Remembering the exodus Because God did some pretty incredible miraculous never seen before, don't try this at home kind of stuff, didn't he? In the Exodus. I mean, don't you remember the 10 plagues? So God brought about this unbelievable deliverance by judging Egypt through 10 plagues. Signs and wonders, which finally broke Pharaoh's obstinance to let God's people go. But following their departure, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he pursues them all the way down to the Red Sea, where God puts an exclamation point on the fact that he is God and there is no other by doing what? He divides the Red Sea. So God's people live, glorious salvation, and Pharaoh's army dies. And what happens next? Well, Israel heads out into the wilderness for 40 years of testing. Verse 9 says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So this is what he's talking about. Now, what are some of the works that the Israelites saw and some of the ways they tested God? Well, how about the lack of water? Exodus 15:22 says, The Israelites went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. So what did they do? They grumbled. Meaning, they didn't believe God. They didn't believe that God would provide for their most basic needs, even though they just saw God provide this unbelievable, miraculous salvation out of Egypt through the Red Sea, so this glorious deliverance, and yet what are they doing? Three days later, they're grumbling they're not believing god we'll take care of them yet how does god respond he provides water to drink he takes care of them reminds them hey i just saved you out of egypt i'll take care of you what happens next lack of food now they've got clean water, but they got no food. So what did they do? Exodus 16 says the whole congregation of the people, the whole congregation of Israel, two million people grumbled. Can you imagine two million people grumbling? That had to be impressive. Two million people grumbling. And what were they saying? They said it would have been so much better to just die in the land of Egypt where we had meat pots and ate bread to the full, for God brought us out here, obviously, from their perspective, just to kill us. What an unbelievable accusation against the God who just saved them. Yet how does God respond? He provides bread from heaven every morning, miraculously appearing on the ground. And quail as a specialty. So everyone eats and is satisfied. And yet the people continue to put God to the test. If you remember, there's another time when they lack water till God provides water from a rock. Again, miraculous provision. And then God's glorious provision to deliver Israel from the Amalekites. Because in Exodus 17, the Israelites start openly, openly questioning whether God's even among them. So although he's constantly providing, they start questioning his goodness, his commitment, and his provision. Exodus seventeen seven tells us all the people of Israel, guess what they were doing? You can guess it. They were grumbling. All the people of Israel were grumbling. And all the people of Israel were testing the Lord. And the people were saying, is God even among us? You see, what I want you to see and what I want you to understand is there's a downward slide that takes place when you allow your heart to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says their hearts were hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. It starts out with grumbling, and then it leads to questioning. First the intentions of God, then the goodness of God, and ultimately the existence of God. And then before you know it, you've got an unbelieving heart that's fallen away from the living God. And you're worshiping a golden calf. Exodus 32. Even though God's provided for your every need, water from a rock, bread from heaven, clothes that don't wear out, shoes with eternal souls, and protection from all of your enemies... And as a result, what's God's response at that point? Hebrews 3.10 tells us, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the point being made is the Israelites are an example Right? They're they're a picture, they're a life lesson for these people to think about and for us to think about. Because God treated them with great mercy and great kindness as he brought them out of Egypt by signs and wonders, and yet they tested him with grumbling, with disobedience, with rebellion, and ultimately, unbelief as a result, God gave them up to die in the wilderness and swore in his wrath that there's no way in the world that they're going to enter God's rest in the promised land. That interpretation only gets solidified when we look at the example explained, verses 16 to 19. So, So skip down to verse 16. Look at what the author says. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Don't miss the progression. Because he's arguing from one connection to the other. So, who were those who heard and yet believed? All of those who left Egypt. All those who had seen God's miraculous salvation. And yet, even though they heard God's word and saw God's miraculous deliverance, they rebelled, they sinned, they were disobedient, and as a result, they died. Because of unbelief. In other words, they saw God's miraculous salvation. But instead of having a heart that was softened to trust God's provision and delight in God's ways, when the trials came, when things got hard, when life grew difficult and their hearts, then their hearts were hardened by the affliction. Right? When those things came, rather than being softened to know that God will provide, their heart was hardened to question God, hardened by the affliction, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. So they grumbled, and they threw away their confidence and threw away their hope in God. So the story of Israel is an example. It's a picture. It's a life lesson for us this morning. Specifically, I would say, for the professing church so that we might not respond to the grace of God and the mercy of God with contempt, presuming to receive it as an escape from the slavery of sin, but not being satisfied with it as guidance and provision and all that we will ever need for the wilderness journey called life. Oh, how many Christians just want the mercy of forgiveness All they want is the grace of salvation so that they don't go to hell, but they have absolutely no heart toward the things of God, no affection for the people of God, and no desire to live in constant communion with God, loving his word and living for his glory. You see, that's the warning being declared to us this morning. Verse 8, verse 15, stated twice so that we might get it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So don't be like the Israelites, but instead learn from them. Look and see what God has done in the past so that you might have a soft heart to the things of God. A soft heart to the good news of the gospel. So that you might persevere in your faith firm to the end. Which brings us to number three, the exhortation to persevere. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 14. As I said earlier, this is the heart of the passage. The author says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. So obviously this is a clear call to all believers. Verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, Yet the first thing the author does is speak directly to the individual by saying, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So how in the world could any of these individual believers fall away from the living God? Especially when verse 14 is teaching eternal security. Well, I would suggest that right now they're just professing Believers who will demonstrate that they really are true believers if indeed they heed the warning and persevere in the faith. But if they're not true believers, then they'll be no different than the soil types 1 and 2 in Mark chapter 4. So if you will, the seed of the word is being sown right now, right? The the gospel is being preached, and they're hearing it, they're receiving it, and by God's grace, they're believing it. So that when the affliction comes, the persecution comes, which in Hebrews, it's absolutely coming. Persecution is right around the corner. Worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. It is coming they're hearing this word, by God's grace, it doesn't get choked out. They heed the warning. They believe the warning. They see the example, and they say, I'm going to persevere in the faith. I'm going to keep clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they don't, then they will die in unbelief. Let me just pause for a moment to speak to any of you who are here this morning, who are so close to Christianity. You've seen God's miraculous work. You've seen it in other people's lives. You've seen their deliverance from sin. You've seen the radical transformation take place in their lives. And yet you personally have not yet put your faith in Christ or you personally would be very quick to profess faith in Christ, but you're being tempted by some of these things, affliction, persecution, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, or even just the desire for other things. But you know you're being tempted You're being pulled away. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches is yanking at your heart, calling you to have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Oh, I appeal to you. Look at what God has done. In the past, and the example that he's given to us, not just in the Exodus, but in the gospel, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Because God is a God who saves, that's the glory of the cross. Look at what God has done. Look at the sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at his sacrificial death on the cross. He did all of that for your salvation. Allow the glory of the gospel to soften your heart. To recognize that what you deserve is God's wrath. But what you're being offered is God's grace. God's salvation. God is a God who saves. And God is a God who promises that he will provide, that he will protect, that he will cause us to persevere to the end. You can trust him. So I invite you to repent. I invite you to believe. You do understand God is the God who saves, and God is the one who will cause you to persevere. But that doesn't go against the need for you to repent and believe. That's an outworking of that. So I invite you to repent, to believe. And I exhort you to put your hope and your trust and your confidence in Christ's finished work on the cross, that you might be forgiven of your sin, that you might have the glorious hope of eternal Rest in heaven. I appeal to you to believe, and I appeal to you to keep believing. Because verse 12 is a call to persevere in the faith, to not let your heart become evil or unbelieving. So don't let go. Don't give in. Don't fall away from the living God which I would suggest is a real danger, especially for the people of God who blow off this warning because they're holding on to some false understanding of eternal security that doesn't recognize we absolutely need the warnings and we need the examples along with the commands and God's promises so that we might persevere in the faith, firm to the end, and enter God's Rest. So how do we do it? Meaning what's the process? What does it look like on a daily basis? Well, I would suggest that's B, our desperate daily need to exhort one another. Verse 12 says, Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God, but, here's the contrast, but instead, exhort one another. Every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have a share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast, firm to the end. So what's our protection against an evil, unbelieving heart? He tells us right here, it's having believers in our lives who are speaking into our lives, faith-sustaining, faith-inflaming words. So family and friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, including your life group. Do you understand this is why we have life groups? So that we can be in one another's lives, so that we can exhort one another on a regular basis. Speaking words of truth, words of encouragement, reminding each other. Every single week that Christ died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that he's conquered sin and death, and that he's coming back, and that he's working in all of these things in your life for your good, even the hard things. Even the difficult things. I do this on a daily basis when I get phone calls of difficult things that are happening in your life. I'm not a doctor. I can't fix the medical issues. What can I do? I can point you to Jesus. I can remind you that he saved you and he's at work in your life right now. That difficult person, that difficult phone call, that, that doctor who says, this is what's going on. God rules. God reigns over all of that. And I can remind you. I can encourage you. I can exhort you to keep believing in Jesus. God's in this. God's working through this so that you might trust him all the more, that you might be growing in your faith, that you might persevere in the faith, that you might hold fast, firm to the end. And I want you to notice how often that needs to take place. I love it when we get details like this. It's so helpful for a guy like me. How often does this need to take place? The author says daily. You don't have to wonder how often do I need to be encouraged in the faith? Daily. I need daily encouragement. I need daily exhortation. Once a month? Nope, not enough. Once a week? Nope, not enough. You need it daily. Exhort one another. Every day. This can't possibly happen simply by hearing the sermon on Sunday, can it? That's once a week. Can't possibly happen through your life group because that's once a week. So that's not going to cut it. Even if you come to church on Sunday and you go to life group, every single week, that's only two out of seven. That's not daily, is it? Well, what does that mean then? Because he says in verse 12, take care of brothers. He's speaking to you. What does that mean? Well, it means that we have to be in one another's lives, doesn't it? Exhorting one another, encouraging one another, speaking truth to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, which means you need to know one another at least well enough to be speaking faith, sustaining faith inflaming flaming words. You need to know each other well enough to do that. I don't randomly call people and say, hey, I got an exhortation for you today. I don't know who you are, but I'm just going to speak into your life. No, I need to know people to do that. I would say you need to know people to do that. Take care, brothers. I want to make sure you're grabbing the main point here. That you and I, are the instruments that God uses to cause other people to persevere in their faith. God uses us as instruments to cause other people to persevere in the faith, which means perseverance is a community project. I need you to help me to persevere in the faith and you need me to help you to persevere in the faith. Every single one of you need each other so that we might persevere in the faith. So just like God is not going to evangelize the world without human faith awakening proclamation, neither is he going to preserve his church without human faith-sustaining exhortations. That seems crystal clear to me from verse 13 and the command to exhort one another each and every day as long as it's still called today. If you have breath in your lungs, you should be involved in another believer's life and they should be involved in your life. And when you get together for coffee, And you look at one another and you say, hey, what are we supposed to be doing here? You should say, well, Hebrews uh, 3.13 says we should exhort one another. We should encourage one another. And we should spur one another on to love and good deeds, reminding one another of the good news of the gospel so that our hearts would be softened on a daily basis so that we make it home to glory here's the question that i think needs to be asked where's your heart this morning cuz that seems crystal clear to me in this passage right your your heart is moving one direction or the other where's your heart which direction is it moving Are you being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Is, is the world pulling you? Is it, is it tugging you? The deceitfulness of riches. We live in America, holy smokes, the deceitfulness of riches. If I can just have one other thing, I'll start giving to the church. If I can just get that last toy. If I can just keep up with that other person or the worries of the world. I just got a lot of stuff going on. It's tugging. Is your heart being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? The the issue doesn't need to be terrible. It can be a good thing, but it's tugging you away from what? Your heart is either being hardened or it's being softened. So if it's being softened, what is it being softened by? It's being softened by the good news of the gospel. It's being softened by the reality of God's word. It's being softened by the warnings and the examples that were being given in Hebrews. Because this is just the start of it in Hebrews 3, right? He keeps warning, he keeps painting this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of worship and he will save us from our sins, and he will take us all the way home to glory. You need to glory in that Jesus, but he also warns us. He doesn't have any tension with both things at the same time. Here's Jesus, glory in Jesus, and you need to be warned. Is your heart being softened by that? The warnings, and the examples, and the commands, and the promises. Which way is your heart going this morning? Is it hardened, being hardened, or is it being softened? 2nd Peter, super helpful, chapter 1 tells us that God's divine power has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, by which he has given us his great Promises so that through them, his great promises, we might escape from the corruption that is in the world because of what does Peter say? The deceitfulness of sin. Then what does he do? He lists these glorious qualities faith, virtue, knowledge, self control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And he says to you that if you're grounded in the gospel, these qualities are yours and they are increasing. Your heart is being softened, and you're moving in this direction. Which way is your heart moving this morning? Is it being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, or is it being softened by the glory of the gospel? I pray that we would be like Richard and Sabina Wormbrandt. And specifically, the church that he pastored. Do you know that in the midst of the persecution, he pastored a church of a thousand people? How is that even possible? It's an underground church. So is it Richard Wormbrandt who's the mover and the shaker? No, it's the church. What did the church do? They faithfully labored together exhorting one another and encouraging one another on a daily basis to persevere, to have soft hearts to the things of the gospel, believing the gospel, keep believing the gospel, and keep proclaiming the gospel so that others might come to faith and grow in grace even in the midst of the difficulty. By God's grace, may that be true of us. Allow me to pray to that end. Oh, Lord. How we need you to work. I just think of the list. Affliction. Persecution. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. There's not a single thing on that list that isn't tugging at my heart on a regular basis. Lord, help us to be in one another's lives, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to glory in the gospel that he died for me. I can be forgiven of my sin. I can have the hope of eternal life by faith alone in him. And may I glory in that reality on a daily basis. And may I encourage my brothers and sisters on a daily basis. May we labor together, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, while it's still called today, to believe in Jesus and to keep believing in Jesus. For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.